and welcome to Sustain, podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul, whatever the heck that actually means. Like, we never really go into that, which is why we're having this episode today. We have no guests today. We only have panelists. So some of these voices you will know. I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. We also have Justin Dorfman. Justin, how are you doing? Great. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Bit over and under caffeinated, but that's lovely. Ben Nichols. Ben, how are you? Royally good. Royally good. Excellent. <laughs> and Amanda Kasari. 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 Independently fantastic. Excellent. Independently fantastic. That is good. I get it now. Okay. I'm like, you didn't leave your job or anything. No, we had just been talking. No, we're, we done. live in New England, Richard. There's a New England, not old England. So New England. Take that, Ben. The queen doesn't matter. I just Jubilee. like points on whose line is it anyway? What does matter is open source. So our conversation today is going to focus around what does sustaining open source actually mean? Obviously, we have this great organization called sustainoss.org, a sustain. Justin was one of the co-founders. Maybe a good entryway into this whole conversation is, Justin, could you talk a bit about the origins of Sustain again for those of our listeners who don't remember how it started and what you were thinking when you called it Sustain? Yeah, little backstory before Sustain. So I did this talk in Portland, Oregon, and I think it was Community Bridge, Open Source Community Bridge, dropping the name. Anyway, I did this talk and there was three people there. And one of these people was Gregor. I can never pronounce his right last name. So Gregor. Martinez. Martinez, yes. And he came up to me. He's like, hey, I think you should meet one of my friends, Pia Mancini. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be great. So Pia and I get on a call and just totally hit it off. Like everything she was talking about was like exactly what I was always talking about and thinking about. And she told me about Open Collective and... Back then, it wasn't really what it is today, but she did a tweet about how they raised $100,000 that year. And to put it in perspective, now, since Ben's on the call, what is Open Collective doing a year from that uh, 100000 million a month? Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. Like the scale has definitely shifted. Anyway, so I responded for some reason like, hey, this is awesome. Like we should do like a back in 2016... The unconference was the hot thing. And I was like, oh, we got to throw that because that sounds easy. And I was like, let's do an unconference <laughs> about sustaining open source. And I kid you not, like I got four DMs from like Dries and a bunch of like big names. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I don't know what to do. Like, I think I bit off a little more than I can chew. So I went to Pia and I'm like, okay, all these people are texting me like, what do we do? And she's like, oh, let's just like contact GitHub and maybe they can host it. And then we start freaking out because we're like, okay, what the hell is an unconference? Like we got a hundred people coming to this thing and Nadia Eggball, she went to a Mozilla event where Gunner was facilitating and basically Pia was talking to Nadia and kind of freaking out as well. And Nadia's like, oh, you have to have Gunner there. He's a great facilitator. So that's how Gunner got involved. And that's pretty much the origin. It started off as a tweet, literally. And just a bunch of fate just happened. What if I didn't give that talk? What if Gregor wasn't at that talk? It's like all these like what ifs. So it was, it was really interesting. 
So what I'm hearing is that Sustain did not have a cathedral-like architecture beforehand. It was very much a bizarre. It was very much, ah, let's, this seems like a good word. Let's just align on this topic. At the same time, people cared. You said we want to sustain open source and you got DMs and people came to that conference in San Francisco. There were like 100 people there and there were 100 people at the next one in London and the next one in Brussels. So it's continued to resonate this whole idea of sustaining open source. Yeah. And what was amazing is, and I'm almost done with the report, the report that the Sustain Africa wrote, I had chills because I was like, awesome report. I was like, this is amazing. We didn't make them do that. You know, I was just like, holy crap, people are actually really into this. So it just got me all excited again. For our listeners, by the way, this is the Sustain 2022 community report. Oscar has continued to throw open source festivals every year in Lagos. And they recently had another one in every single one of these. They've had a Sustain track and they just came out with a report about Sustain which is the coolest thing in the world because Justin and I weren't really involved. Just to be clear, OSCA, O-S-C-A, stands for Open Source Community Africa. Thank you. Not yeah. someone named Oscar. Yeah, yeah. yeah but so this report's what, great. Yeah, I mean, I saw this and I'm like, who put them up to this? I don't remember this coming up in any thing. So it just kind of got me thinking like, and I know we're going to talk about the definition today, but we got to create this playbook and have other chapters. I mean, just create chapters just like Oscar did. But I think coming up with a really good foundation with the definition and maybe principles, that's what we're here to talk about today. So I'll, I'll hand it over to Richard. I guess the reason why I asked you, Justin, is because it's at the first conference, and I think especially the second one, you talked a lot about what sustaining means. Like the first conversation was really like, what are we all doing here in a room? We know there's an issue. This was before the XKCD comic of Infamous Doom. We know there's something going on in the world, but like, how do we make sure the open source continues? You came up with this whole definition of a sustainer. Do you remember that definition? No, Ben came up with it. Ah, Ben, you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So I have been involved in the authoring of both of the reports, Richard and a lot of the people who have been at those events have contributed as well. But I think Richard and I predominantly have put those reports together as pieces of writing. And one of the things that I wanted to do with the first report was outline all of the, I don't really like using the word, but stakeholders in the space and just kind of describe them as an attempt to include them in the conversation and specifically call them out as being people who we care about as a community and that we're thinking about. But there was a group of people, for whatever reason, kind of maybe weren't considered a core kind of part of that group. And this was the group of people who were doing research, the group of people who were like, I think at the time, Nadia was a product manager at GitHub working on a lot of their open source stuff, but couldn't really identify as a maintainer or a contributor and really weren't like a consumer or a user of open source in that it wasn't part of their like day-to-day job and wasn't really helping them with their day-to-day job. So sustainer was really just a way of trying to include those people in the conversation and say to people who may be a little exclusionary because they don't exist in one of those groups that we value them as a part of this movement. We value what they're bringing into the space and we want that opinion, that view to kind of be 
included. So yeah, we came up with this definition of sustainer, which is just simply an individual or an organization who's concerned with the fragile state and future of highly used and impactful open source projects, which today we either call like critical infrastructure or digital infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, that's kind of where it came from was an attempt to say, hey, these people don't really have a strong identity within this community. So let's give them one that they can rally around. So we've had like 100 episodes. Well, we've had 125 episodes of Sustain. We've talked to tons of people who would now identify themselves as sustainers, as people who are interested in this space, people who may not be coders, people who may not be policymakers, but people who are interested in figuring out how do we keep open source going. I don't feel like we're all that much closer towards actually defining what sustenance is. And I think that's probably okay. And maybe I should say that till the end of this conversation because it'll be a nice way to wrap it up. But it's all okay. We're all in it together, right? But like, I still want to know how we think about what sustaining means because I think it's still a vague term. So I, I have what might be a controversial question. And I like, yes. to the group, newer to the sustain specific community. When do we talk about, if we think of things as ecosystems, that there are cycles where things go away. So like, I don't want to draw insensitive analogies to things around living beings, but if we are thinking about how life cycles exist and things change over time, when we think about sustaining, I do think we have to recognize that not everything always keeps going and we have to be able to have not just transitions and handoffs, but graceful endings of either people's time as a part of projects, of projects themselves, open source, like Forking is not a threat. It's a promise. It's there to actually help and make sure that stuff keeps going when it's not just one person's concept or idea. And I would just love to talk about a little bit, like when we think about sustaining, like how do we think about helping those kind of graceful endings and exits? So the way I think about this problem, Amanda, it's a good question. And it's not that controversial. It's the question. The way I think about it is I go back to college where I had a whole course called Sublexical Semantics which looked at what are the meanings inside of words? How do you understand those meanings and what theories and frameworks are there for understanding those meanings? So when I think about sustaining, what's often implied by sustenance is a continued movement, a continued thing. Like things have to continue in the same vein. And yes, that is part of the word, but there's other ways of thinking about sustaining where if you put it into context with other words, it's clear that that's not the case. So if we think of open source as say an ecosystem and we think of it as a garden, and then we think of gardeners, Yes, it's important to make sure that roses bloom and continue to bloom perennially and evermore. But also it's important to lay down mulch. Also, it's important to snip. Also, it's important to decide that maybe this bush doesn't need to be here anymore and it's lived its life. So while that's a very on top, downward focus, hierarchical model, it's a metaphor. I'm not saying that's what we need to do. But I'm saying that naturally within the life cycle of things, we can talk about sustaining open source and open source projects while also including a framework for understanding the death cycle and the end of a project. And that's still within sustenance for me. It still applies to the problem. So I wanted to just kind of respond and say, for me, the whole sustainability thing is about a combination of kind of incentives and market failures. I come at the problem very much from the perspective of the most interesting, broadest global problem that I've come across is this characterized as tragedy of the commons kind of problem that exists for a certain class of open source project, 
that class of open source project is the kind of project that is highly used by a broad kind of remit of organizations and individuals and their work. And there is a need to have someone there doing work on that project because as usage kind of grows, you get more environmental changes. Those environmental changes need to be reflected because people still need to be able to use that particular piece of software in different environments that change more time. And it was about the fact that there is no good incentive for someone to do that work, which doesn't align with a lot of the core incentives for contributing to open source software, right? So like things like, hey, I get to build a profile. Hey, I get to work on interesting problems. Hey, I get to meet new people. Hey, I get to learn new skills and so on. Those incentives go away for that type of project. And if that project needs to die because it's been replaced by something better, fine. But the particular case that I'm interested in is when there is not a better solution that the community of users wishes to move to that can kind of vote with their feet. But there is a necessity because of embeddedness and so on for someone to keep that particular piece of software just surviving, basically. Interesting. That reminds me of a short presentation I saw yesterday by David Johnson and Lawrence Clute, who are researchers from South Africa who have been looking at contributions to internet standards over the course of the past 20 years from across the world, largely from within Africa. And they've seen a massive peak around 2005 and then a die-off. People have stopped submitting to internet standards over the past 10, 15 years. Weirdest thing about this study, by the way, Mauritius, highly into open source. Did not know that. Super cool. Just thought I'd throw that out there. And one of the things that they suggested as a reason for this die-off of like submissions to RFPs and the like for standards, it's because it's a fully formed ecosystem. The internet works. We don't need to work on those standards the same way. And people who have done so are moving on to like greener fields of more interesting pastures. I'm not saying they're all working in Web3 now, but maybe there are just other issues that we're working on. I like that cycle that you're talking about, what the incentives are and how things change and where projects are in their movement. So just wanted to say that reminded me of it. It comes back to me kind of this fundamental question. And it does, I know I make faces at you a lot, Richard, but like... The analogies do matter to me because I do think they're representative of the assumptions that we make, the stories we tell each other, and the ways that we hold concepts in our mind about how reality exists. And so to be quite frank, like when I hear the idea that open source is a well-tended garden, or even if we do want to move into the commons perspective, the idea of a public commons is different in different cultures a lot of times based on geography, like history, the idea of who the land belongs to and who's responsible for that land. So I agree. I think there is something to be picked up where when there is a fully developed, well-mature ecosystem or piece of an ecosystem that there's the idea that it's kind of over-civilized and there's places that may get worked on or tended to or maintained over time. But for a global system like open source, I don't know that that works as a larger metaphor. I do think if we try to do top-down management and it gets attempted, top-down management of this larger ecosystem, it doesn't scale. And it doesn't even scale in some communities. I think that we don't see that yet, but we feel that in some of the friction that exists and some of the debt that exists, organizational debt, technical debt. Then I feel like a lot of the things you're talking about is just 
isn't just, there's no just, but like one of the things, it's a symptom of poor investment in economic models in open source and not really understanding long-term effects for short-term actions. And I have a lot of questions. I don't have a lot of answers yet, but I have a lot of questions about when we talk about things existing for longer periods of time, are we rooting ourselves in models that have shown to be short-sighted? I'm glad you brought up short-sighted and models because that reminds me that open source is a jellyfish and jellyfish, of course, have many eyes. And so what's interesting about that is some people have more clarity than other people. This is a bad metaphor. Some metaphors are bad, but like all models are wrong. Some are useful is my opinion when it comes to metaphors. I'm not saying it's a well-tended garden. I don't think I said it was a well-tended one. I'm just saying thinking of it as a garden can help you realize certain aspects. Just like thinking of open source as a banana tree can make you think about other aspects. I'm not firmly held on to any of the metaphors I use. I just like throwing them out there. The commons is a particularly interesting one, the tragedy of the commons, because it was just referenced, but the paper that initially came up with it has been like shown to be wrong over and over again. And so it's just really interesting that every time it comes up, people automatically go, oh yeah, too many cows in my pasture, but then don't think, but that was refuted by thousands of different papers. And so it's kind of like, right. I, I, I hear you catchy, on that. It's a catchy phrase. How do you break off those catchy phrases to be able to introduce and have people question, but what does it look like now? And for your question, what is needed now and what is needed in the future, as opposed to what does it look like for maybe somebody's multi-year career, but doesn't look like that anymore? So I think running with that, just switching tacks, self-standing is figuring out and having an ecosystem level approach of what open source is great. What's needed now, that's different than five years ago. That's different. The scale at which our funding has injected into the ecosystem is amazingly beyond our wildest dreams from five years ago. If I see a company put $50,000 into open source, it doesn't register on my radar anymore. It kind of does. It's like there. And I'm like, okay, I should talk to that person. But I'm not like, what anymore? Like, it's just like, yeah, it's like, okay, cool. That's really great. I'm glad they're doing that. I'm so on the same page. When you said that, it's like the same. I was like, Fifty thousand dollars. What do you? What yeah, about that's 10, marketing. Ten million. Yeah, no, you know, we got to give like a little context here. So, ten years ago, there wasn't really great infrastructure for raising money. Like the way I started in this whole thing is Git Tip. So, by Chad Coffee. Whitaker. Yeah, Chad Whitaker changed the game when it came to donating to open source because there was a leaderboard on the front page, and we, being Max CDN, being a small bootstrap startup. Our goal was to get to number one every week. And that cost us $500 a week, but it was worth it. Now it's like you have Open Collective doing a million a month, if I remember correctly. I know you just said it, but how things have changed over this past 10 or 12 years in terms of having this infrastructure for donating, for making it easier for companies and giving it more, not pressure, but just more of an incentive in terms of recruiting and you name it, just, just branding in, in general. It's cool to give back to the open source community. Not every company can donate engineering time. It's just not in their cards. So being able to use these platforms like GitHub sponsors, Open Collective, some use Patreon, I believe, but either way, the tools we have now at our disposal is a lot better than we had a decade ago. So I think it's just important to have some type of context for those who are just coming in the game. Just know that like things have definitely evolved over the past 
10 to 12 years. Yeah. Thanks, Justin. And I think maybe I should have said it does register. Like, I'm not saying that you've put $50,000, you're not doing anything. I'm just saying like, that's cool. You're one of 20 companies that do that now, or maybe 50. And it's cool to maybe we should track that somewhere, right? Amanda, that would be cool to get like a spreadsheet up and be like, who's donating? And we talked about that recently. So that's something I like. And thinking about how, like what we need now in the ecosystem, now we need different types of investment. We have companies investing because it's a good idea to do so. We have government investment in terms of policy. We have government investment in terms of like the German government putting $3.3 million into the digital sovereign tech fund, which is like fascinating, right? We're going to see how that's going to change. And that's new too. That was only released a couple of like weeks ago that that was the amount of money that's going to go in. So I'm thinking about like these level things, like what's different about the sustaining ecosystem now as opposed to where it was. So I wanted to maybe pull the conversation a little bit away from money and so on. And I just wanted to kind of say like, Open Collective could very easily be seen to be obsessed by money because the gap that we fill, the need that we try to cater to is the fact that there was no good platform for people to raise money and to manage money and to spend money together on things like community open source development. But the other thing that has happened over the course of the last six, seven years that I've been involved is that there is genuinely a more mature approach to how an open source project can attract and manage and use the time that they have effectively as well, right? And again, this is about incentives and it's about the incentives to contribute to open source as much as the incentives necessary to supplement that work when those incentives don't exist, right? So that's the money conversation. And I think we've seen now many more examples of how money has been used in open source and how open source projects have become more inclusive, receptive, and thoughtful about how they think about new contributors, how they think about expanding the group of maintainers, how they think about who has access, how they think about like events, how they think about how they talk about themselves, marketing and all those kinds of things as well. So I just think we can talk for a long time about money, but the other thing that we should also celebrate is that in general, open source projects are thinking more about this, not as an ecosystem level problem, but as an individual problem for them and they're maturing and they're finding a way to sustain their work without money. And I think that's just as important really. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't mean to focus it on money. I was just saying that's one of the things that we could talk about in terms of how the ecosystem has changed. Another thing that's not money that I think is interesting, which the ecosystem hasn't changed to talk about yet, is the environmental sustainability of open source as an entire thing. We're already seeing a lot of waves, like actual reports and news articles and discussions that are important at major levels around the environmental costs of training AI models is massive. It is massive to train an AI model. The amount of energy you're putting in to run some of these massive, mo- I just keep using big words, humongous models, right, is incredulous. And for open source, we don't talk about what's the environmental cost of everyone having NPM modules and running all the time. And so I, I'd be curious about that. Actually, people do talk about that. I have seen, oh, cool. um, I wish I could remember, I'll try to find it for the, the notes, the show notes. I have seen a talk given by a person in the last, I think in the last year, that was about considering the environmental impact of sloppy code. So like thinking about your specific work, and this was not infrastructure level, which I 
do think that does need to be talked Please about. Please don't say my specific right. word because now I just feel guilty for all my bad code. <laughs> no, no, no. But like, it was this fundamental discussion about like, okay, thinking about compute cycles. And this was for non-ML applications. It's like thinking about compute cycles, considering that even if you're trying to run your code in a green data center, like a carbon neutral data center, there are still costs associated with fundamental building, building computers. And so like treating resources as something that should be preserved and treating your code as something that should be contributing as little energy as possible, which is fascinating because if you talk with firmware engineers, they just laugh at you. They're like, of course you have to optimize. Of course you can't use a lot of cycles because then you drain your battery. So I think the considerations of who gets to think about this is also uneven across open source as to who has to be concerned and why based on resources they have available to them. It's interesting that you mentioned, Amanda, who gets to think about things. Because five years ago, Ospos didn't have to think about the security ramifications of their open source. At least it wasn't something that people worried about consistently. Maintainers didn't really think about all the time, like, how do you get other people on board and how do you deal with bounties in a productive way that doesn't kill your ecosystem? And now we're much more likely to have that in the forefront of our heads when we come from an open source project being like, okay, I want to get money, but I I can't just spend it on people because that's not going to work. So how do I make sure that it does it in a way that incentivizes people to come back and become engineers in their own time, giving more of their free time so I don't have to pay them? So like those conversations and like what you have to think about changes over time. And I think maybe that's the purpose of sustain is is like making sure that we have a space for those kind of conversations. Yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge too that just people, depending on, I don't say maturity of the project in terms of like time you've been around, but in terms of the problems that you're working on. So what is important to you? What do you have to think about? What do you have to spend resources, time, energy on? Different projects are at different places. And sometimes the scale that you're working at does influence then the kinds of things that you take notice of and the problems that are attracting and like we're spending your energy on. Who gets to think about what is interesting, but I think what's more interesting is what sort of conversations happen on an ecosystem level between all the participants and all the stakeholders. Because previously designers thought about design and hopefully if open source design has done anything, it's made it clearer that actually programmers can also think about design and can think about getting designers on board. So I have a concern here. I've had interesting conversations in the last few months where, and we've talked a lot about this. Like I was on the show previously, we talked about people doing different kinds of work in open source, which I do think kind of reflects change in just like technology roles in general. Again, like when realizing that different skill sets and things that are done help enhance any kind of group or any kind of like final technology. But I'm concerned that, and again, this goes maybe around transparency and sorry, back to the money issue. Are we actively like for the people who we want to bring in to do that work for the people who have those skills, who bring all of that work that is not software engineering into project and into open source, can they participate as widely and as much? Are they valued as much? If they do need remuneration, if they cannot simply afford to do things for free, if they can't spend their time, if they're freelancers and they can't spend their otherwise paid time on things as a volunteer project, We are encouraging all of this to be existing, but are the large scale organizations and investments actually giving value and moving pieces in the directions where it is creating a playing field that people of many different kinds of contributors can 
participate. The playing field is not level. The playing field will never be level. I hold these truths to be self-evident that man was created equal. It's like pretty much bull crap. We're not equal. What's interesting is what you can do societally to make sure that people who don't have the opportunities other people have are able to have those opportunities. That we build structures that make it so that just where you are and where you come from and what you do and all these different facets of what creates an identity don't determine your future and don't make other people see you as less than being a worthy human being. Maybe I misphrased that in some way. I'm trying my best. Please be graceful with me. But ultimately, there are people who are much better programmers than me. And they will be able to build stuff that I will never be able to dream. And that makes me sad. But maybe I have other skills that they don't have, which is cool. I would like to see the ecosystem appropriately give honor to people who do the things that are honorable, things that are really, really interesting, things that are cool, including things like project management, including things like marketing, including things like design, including things like code review and also code and also ideation and also execution. So I hear that. I think part of the thing that we need to do in the open source community or part of the thing that I'm trying to steer the ship towards instead of having it as a directorial, we need to do this kind of thing is try to just accept that OSI made a list of licenses, which are great, which talk about licensing code so people can share it. And that's the smallest bit of the open source ecosystem. And it's a good start. But now we have to figure out, okay, how do these projects such as they are exist in this weird world where concepts exist like open source that are bigger than the OSI licenses? And how do we make sure that people are honored for their work? Yeah, I agree with you in that honoring people for their work and giving them visibility, making sure that they're seen is a great step forward that we can all be working on because that's definitely a gap that still exists. So bigger questions beyond that. How do you do that authentically from inside a large company? How do you authentically engage with the open source ecosystem? How do you effectively incentivize and pay people who have given away their stuff for free because they chose a license that basically said, don't pay me for this, take it. How do we do that? And what if they don't want to? How do we have a governmental policy towards like making sure that like national welfare is protected in the sense that the internet needs to keep running when it's based upon things that people have given away and don't want to support? And that's totally okay for them to do that appropriately. These are like open questions I have, which I think is what sustaining means now, much more than like, how do we make sure the open source continues to win like that? Whatever. That's a dumb question. It's it's like, it's like stupid. It wasn't five years ago. It wasn't 20 years ago. But now it's like, okay, what do we do to ensure that the code that we're building leads to a more equitable world and a more authentic world is probably like the bigger question that's more important. So maybe instead of sustain open source, we should like rebrand as like social coding equity open source or something. I don't know. How do we keep 501 C6s from ruling the entire space? (laughs) There are are other awkward questions I can ask. I think if you shy away from any of those questions, Richard, it means we're not talking enough. We're not recognizing the world that we currently exist in. So I dump snark on this all the time. The XKCD comic showing digital infrastructure as one small person in Kansas is great, but it ignores every other block in that comic. And who is funding the blocks in those comics and who has governance to it and who has access to it and who is maintaining it and what are their intentions and what are their final destination that they want to be going to. I do think it's important to, again, like I just get concerned about that because I think that we hyper-focus on trying to prevent things that have already happened before. So again, like we look at things that have happened once. So open SSL, 
tore down the internet. And that is the, where's the person living on a sailboat in Sweden who we need to make sure still is possible to get access to if we need to. Like that's the concept around open source sustainability that a lot of folks are focusing on is like- You mean Andre, he's in Finland. Sorry, Okay. sorry. Sorry, thank you, yes, maybe wrong country. I keep hearing from folks this idea of like, oh, we need to make sure the maintainers are doing the right thing. And I'm like, I have a problem with this. I have a problem with you making fundamental business decisions, as you said, on someone else's work and then asking them to do more and then insisting that they follow your business models when they have to get to Ben's point. Like they don't have to. And then there's the concept of like, what do you do then? So I think this question, this larger question of who gets to make decisions, who gets the weight of those decisions, how are we collectively understanding those and how do we even get visibility into all of it? I keep coming back to visibility and transparency. I feel like so much of open source is now closed down in a way where it was previously very open. Mailing lists, anybody can still view. You can't go into closed gate communities. Better for community participation, better for moderation, better for creating equitable places for conversation. But it also can be places then that there is complete opaqueness into understanding the direction that projects and communities are moving until something happens like an entire board quits in a day. I think what my mind focused on and what you said, which has to do with a lot of the personal work I'm doing is around telling other people to do should stuff, like telling anyone to do should. So our conversation always strikes me as somewhat heavy, the sustaining conversation, because it's always like we're dealing with big issues. But then half of open source, you go on Twitter, it's like, I got a job because of open source. Yeah, look at me. Here's a fun gift of a child on a chair waving. And it's like, that's great. But it strikes me very similarly based on my background as like evangelist. And we use the word evangelist for a reason. And I think about the whole idea of the Judeo-Christian Western view, which is that you should do X because someone else told you. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's your community. Maybe it's your internalized guilt and shame. It's going to get you the higher reward. It's going to get you the ultimate higher reward that you are aiming for. And it's not a culture of, well, do whatever you want. And I feel like open source instinctively, well, not instinctively, but looking at the letter, And the spirit was started as do whatever you want with this. Have fun. And we're seeing a lot of movements in the other direction. It's like, okay, we need to control this or make it secure and stuff. And yes, we are ranting a bit, but that's okay. We're having a side chat in the sidebar here saying we're apologizing for ranting to Justin, who's listening quietly. But I always think of like, how can I not should anyone, but how can I make sure they can do their work better? And how can I make it so other people don't should other people? Because shooting is just not... It's not on. It's not on. Don't should people. You shouldn't do that. That's probably a good place to wrap up. So this was an interesting conversation around sustaining open source. There's obviously a lot more that we could talk about and are going to continue talking about in the future. Listeners, you weren't on this podcast. You were listening. I really wish you were on this podcast. You have thoughts on like what sustaining means. I actually want to hear them because I am naive, stupid, imperfect, not great. I am like 2% of all the input which I have had over the world. And I would love to know more. And I would love to know where I'm wrong and where Amanda's wrong and where Justin's wrong and where Ben's wrong or where we're almost close, but the jellyfish metaphor is off. I mean, that Um, might be actually solid gold, Richard. Like, I think possible or that more possible. Large poisonous things in the ocean. Australian dog vomit. Dog vomit slime molds are super cool. Look this up. My dog vomited the other day and I put resolve on the 
rug and now the rug's warped. Just had to say that. I, I thought Resolve was like a testing platform for open source. Isn't that like a no, platform? No, it's, it's a also carpet a cleaner. carpet cleaner for... Oh, it's also a carpet cleaner. Yeah. Okay, that's a great place to wrap up. If you have thoughts, <laughs> oh, listeners, please email us. We are approachable at podcast.sustainoss.org. We are on the discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org. We are on Twitter at sustainoss.org. Well, no. sustainoss. Yes. It is... It is difficult not to find us if you want to weigh in in this conversation. If you feel like you have a lot to say, get in touch. We love having more guests on. Yeah. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah. And check the show notes for the report from Sustain OSS Africa. Again, I'm halfway done, but I'm already like amazed. And we're hoping to get them on the podcast as well. So we can talk more about that later in depth. For now, this is also the part of the show where we move on to other things. So Spotlight. Spotlight's where we point out Project places, people, or slime molds, which have been important to us in the past or will be important to us in the future, or just some really great things that just need more light. Justin Dorfman, what is your spotlight today? Speaking of recognizing contributors, I recognize non-code contributors like Aaron McKean in my newsletter, which comes out a couple times a month. Go to twitter.com slash jdorfman and click start reading, and you will see how I recognize non-code contributors. Awesome. Thank you. Ben, what is your spotlight today? I am going to be spending this weekend at the UK's premier board game convention, the UK Board Game Expo. And I just wanted to share that there's a open Creative Commons licensed version of a very popular party game called Monikers, available at playmonikers.com, which is by Will McCormack. Will you should also share the link to the GitHub repo for that from the website, but it's all good. But yeah, if you want to play effectively a version of the game that was called Who's in the Hat, but with very funny pre-selected things to pull out of said hat, then playmonikers.com is my recommendation there. Thank you very much. Ben, sounds boring. Board games. I am not sorry about that. Amanda, sorry, what is your spotlight today? Yeah, as an Aaron McCain super fan, I do want to say I'm going to continue Ben's game theme that he did. So I have really been enjoying the Play Elevator Saga game, which is open sourced on GitHub. It's made by Magnus Walfett and contributors. It's basically a web-based game where you have to write programs to get people up and down elevators in a specific amount of time between different floors. And it's Highly addictive. So please don't start it at the beginning of the workday. I'll include it in the show notes. Awesome. I'm already wanting to play. <laughs> Slurm. It's highly addictive. Awesome. My spotlight of the day is Nicole Kellner. Nicole Kellner is really cool. I met her years ago at Hacker Paradise, lives in New York. She is a climate artist. She makes climate art. If you're interested in seeing cool watercolors and stuff about the climate, Go check her out on Instagram or on Twitter. What's really cool about Nicole is she just released a icon set for open source. It's all like little tiny watercolor icons of like whales and butterflies and trucks and carbon and everything you would need to talk about carbon catastrophe and climate change. Nicole Kellner, super awesome person. Thank you, Nicole. With that, I think I already mentioned Discourse at sustainoss.org, sustainoss.org, at sustainoss on Twitter, podcast at sustainoss. OSS.org. If you're interested in emailing us, please like us on Apple. Please like us on Spotify, on all the different platforms. Thank you for listening. Share us widely. 
you have any comments, concerns, questions, or just random things that you want to talk about, I am always open for that. Please sign me up for your weird spam mail. Thank you so much, Amanda. Justin, it's been great to see you. Ben, I hope your haircut is amazing because you're not here anymore. And that's a wrap. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thank you.